0: Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Well, today, I want to talk about something that is, on the surface at least, so boring. I want to talk about using governing documents in your ministry organization. Now, as I said, what could be more boring? Well, They're only boring if you don't have them or use them inappropriately or don't fully understand how valuable they can be to your church or to your ministry organization. So, today I want to start what I think is going to be a two part podcast on using governing documents. Today, I want to talk about what types of governing documents are helpful in ministry organizations and the benefits and the problems. Uh, with these, and then maybe some suggestions about how to write or revise your documents if they're in need of some help. So the first thing is, let's overview the types of governing documents which are helpful in ministry organizations. And the first one is something called your articles of incorporation. And it's likely that you have never seen this piece of paper. Articles of incorporation are fairly short, and they are the documents that are used to establish your church or ministry organization as a legal corporation that can do business as a corporation. And the Articles of Incorporation are something that are developed usually by an attorney, although they're very simple in most cases. Uh, They're developed by an attorney and submitted to your state government, and you receive back uh, a certification or an approval which establishes your church or ministry organization as a corporation. Now, once you get this in place, you very seldom ever need to look at them again, unless there's some uh, significant change that comes in your organization, or there's some uh, need to close it or to reform it in some way. You probably don't look at these documents very often. I know that here at the seminary, uh, we have these on file. Uh, We provide a copy of them to our board of trustees but we almost never, ever need to actually use them uh, in our work. Now, a big exception to that, of course, was when we changed our name. When we, came, uh, we, we when we moved from being Golden Gate Seminary to Gateway Seminary, um, this required some revision, even to those Articles of Incorporation. And so they are a living document and something that you have to keep up with, you have to uh, use appropriately, and you have to re- revise occasionally but they aren't something that you use on a week-to-week basis in your church or organization. So the first type of governing document is an Articles of Incorporation. The second is a doctrinal statement. Every church or ministry organization needs some kind of doctrinal statement to give it form and to give it some parameters that determine its beliefs. Now, today, we're, we're not going to have time to go into all the different things that might be in a doctrinal statement and all the reasons uh, why certain doctrines should be in there and perhaps certain doctrines not. But what I do want to address today is one fundament, fundamental question, and that is, should you as an organization write your own doctrinal statement or should you as an organization adopt a doctrinal statement from that someone else has put together? Now, if you're an organization like Gateway where you're wholly owned by the Southern Baptist Convention, then the answer is very simple. Our doctrinal statement becomes the doctrinal statement adopted by the Southern Baptist Convention. But what if you're a church or a ministry organization that doesn't have that kind of uh, dot denominational alignment? Well, you'll need to write your own or adopt one that's been written by someone else. Now, this may surprise you. Uh, given the fact that, uh, that I love to write, and that I've published a lot of books and materials, and that I think writing is a very significant part of our ministry, this may surprise you, but I would advocate that you not write your own doctrinal statement. That instead, you adopt one that's been written by someone else. Why? Because no matter how hard you try, if you write your own doctrinal statement, it's going to reflect your own doctrinal perspectives and your own doctrinal prejudices. It's going to reflect maybe some narrowness in some areas where you may not necessarily need to be narrow, and it may actually miss some areas that you really do need to include. This is the wisdom of a doctrinal statement that's written by a group, uh, something that's put together perhaps over a period of several years of reflection and debate and argument and discussion. When you finally come to something in a group context that's adopted by an association or a convention or some group of churches like that, then you likely have a doctrinal statement that's going to be much more balanced, much more thorough, and much more complete. Now, there is certainly nothing wrong with writing your own doctrinal statement. You just have to recognize the limitations of that if you do so. And adopting something that's been put together through a much broader process is often a wiser course of action. So the first type of governing document is articles of incorporation, and the second is your doctrinal statement. A third is something called bylaws. Now, you may have heard the phrase constitution and bylaws, and that's really dated language or even archaic language. Uh, In the old days, your constitution established your uh, identity But now your Articles of Incorporation are required to do that. And so you really need a set of bylaws more than you need a constitution. Here at the seminary, we have an Articles of Incorporation, and then we have our bylaws. And those are our two legally governing documents. Now, bylaws are the rules an organization adopts to govern its own function, They're much more specific than in Articles of Incorporation in that that they spell out how the organization does certain things. For example, how the organization uh, chooses its doctrinal statement, how the organization chooses its leaders, how the organization allocates or determines who spends its resources. These are things that are typically covered in the bylaws. Now, bylaws can be amended uh, usually fairly simply by a majority or a two-thirds vote depending on the issue and depending on what the bylaws themselves may say. Uh, Bylaws are more of a living document than the Articles of Incorporation. They're something that does need to be updated regularly and is used frequently in decision-making by organizations. So bylaws are those useful tools that you create Uh, that give you the rules that govern your actual operations. And so that's why a set of bylaws for a seminary might look very different than a set of bylaws for a church, which might look very different than a set of bylaws for a nonprofit organization or some kind of uh, parachurch ministry. Bylaws are really tailored to the functionality of the organization, and they help to give an organization form and function. Bylaws spell out things like what happens if the leader resigns or how do we get new board members added to our mix or what kinds of decisions are reserved for certain groups in the uh, in the in the organization. And so bylaws can be very helpful at minimizing conflict and at giving direction and at helping people to understand how organizations work. Well besides articles of incorporation and a doctrinal statement and bylaws a fourth very helpful type of governing document is a personnel manual now a personnel manual can be a fairly simple document uh, just a few pages laying out how a church for example is going to treat its pastor or maybe it's uh, pastor and part-time employees most churches are very small they don't have large numbers of employees and so uh, the personnel manual can be a fairly straightforward document It would spell out things like uh, vacation and sick leave and sabbaticals and spell out things like work expectations and supervisory responsibilities. Uh, It might even include things like job descriptions or uh, job assignments. So a personnel manual can be a fairly simple, fairly straightforward document that looks more like a personnel handout than a full-blown manual. But when you get into larger churches or larger organizations like Gateway, you need to have a personnel manual that's developed by professionals and really does involve a lot more detail. Here at the seminary, we have 150 employees, which means we're subject to almost every uh, HR rule, law, and regulation in the state of California and also in the other states where we have employees. And so our personnel manual has to take into consideration all of those things. Now, you may not know this, but your church insurance company or your ministry insurance company will actually help you with your personnel comm- manual, oftentimes free of charge. Ours does here at the seminary. Uh, why? Because they want to mitigate risk and eliminate lawsuits and save themselves money in the long run by giving us a better set of policies to work with uh, every year. So here at the seminary, we, revalue, we revise and evaluate our personnel manual every summer. And we readopt it every year on August 1st in uh, conjunction with the beginning of the new academic year and the new uh, uh, budget year here in our school. So personnel manual is a very important governing document That helps you to understand how to administrate the people who work in your organization and make sure that you stay abreast of things like legal requirements or uh, laws, changes in the laws, uh, important regulations, and those kinds of things. It also spells out some individualized things that are just unique to your organization. Uh, For example, here at Gateway, we have some specific policies that are in place because we're a multicultural organization and we feel like those policies need to reflect the kind of organization that we are. We also have policies that are in place because we have employees in multiple states and there are different laws that govern things in those multiple states and we have to spell that out in our manual so there's less confusion among employees when they see people doing things differently in different parts of the organization. So another type of governing document that's very helpful is a personnel manual. Now, there's two more kinds of governing documents, but frankly, These are probably more common in larger organizations than they are in small churches. But nevertheless, they have some application that might be useful in almost any context. So the fifth kind of governing document that's very helpful are what we call operations manuals. Operations manuals are explanations of how specific things in the organization are done. In other words, how we operate. So uh, those operations manuals are usually developed by people so that when they leave or if they're out sick or if they're on some kind of leave, someone can step in and look at the manual and, and understand at least the basics of their job function and what they're supposed to do. Uh, we have one of these, for example, in the president's office here at Gateway and the, the executive assistant to the president maintains this manual. And it's an operations manual of what she does in leading the president's office. And it's broken down by categories and it's broken down by calendars so that she can look at it and say, you know, in January, these are the things we typically do. And when we typically do these things, then there's an explanation of each one of them and some of the key steps that have to be taken in relation to each thing. Now, obviously, uh, uh, an operations manual can't spell out every minute detail of every single job that has to be done, but it does give you a good overview and a good outline of what needs to have, uh, needs to happen. And this is extremely helpful when you have a job change, someone out on extended leave, or a reorganization that causes new people to take on uh, existing responsibilities. So while an operations manual might seem very onerous to create, It's a very helpful tool in all these different ways. Now, the simplest way to develop an operations manual is just to have a person start taking notes on their own job. What did I do this week? And make notes in a manual and then keep doing that over the first year. And after a year, you'll have a working draft that you can then improve as time goes by. Now, obviously, here at the seminary, we're a fairly mature organization. We've been at this for a while. We're coming up on our 80th year. And so some of these operations manuals have been in place for years, and they just keep getting updated and tweaked and handed down to the next person as people come into the organization. And then the final one of these types of governing documents is something called a policy manual. And a policy manual is not something that's really tied to a specific job or even to personnel. It's more just the policies that govern an organization, and these can be uh, general policies like on uh, building use and uh, hours of operation, and uh, you know who can use the church for weddings. I mean, these are the kinds of person or excuse me, policy manuals that can be put into place that are also very helpful. So there are six kinds of governing documents that I'm talking about on the podcast today, articles of incorporation, doctrinal statement, bylaws, personnel manual operations, manuals, and policy manuals. Now, depending on your organization, you may not need all of these. You definitely need an articles of incorporation so that you are legally ready to do work in our culture. I think you need a doctrinal statement, and you definitely need some bylaws. Beyond that, personnel manual, operations manual, and policy manual. These things are going to really be tailored to the size and scope and complexity of your particular church or ministry organization. So don't feel pressured today that you have to have all of these up to a certain level or a certain length or a certain standard, but just think through these and think of ways that you might improve your organization by having good documents in the categories I've described. So what are the benefits of having these good governing documents? Well, first, they establish your legal existence. Without them, uh, you're really not able to do business unless you're a corporation. And if you aren't incorporated, you really place all of your members and leaders at great personal risk because their liability then becomes personal for the actions of the corporation. So it establishes your legal existence and the protections and the privileges that come with that. A second benefit is establishes doctrinal foundation for not only your ministry, but for other policies that are going to grow out of your doctrinal statement. Now, while there's a lot of pressure on churches and religious organizations in America today, we still have the privilege of discriminating in our decision-making based on our doctrinal statement. And so having a good doctrinal statement really establishes your legal permission to say, we do these certain things, we hold these certain convictions, we have these certain practices because we believe the Bible teaches it and our doctrine demands it. So it's important to have these statements for that reason. Another benefit is good governing documents define the rules and the methods and the procedures for a particular organization and, in fact, save a tremendous amount of time that's not wasted trying to reinvent the wheel every time a decision needs to be made. There are rules and methods and procedures And those are distinct to a certain organization, like a church or a seminary or a parachurch organization, and they give the definition of how that organization functions. Another benefit is good governing documents create clear commitment levels and expectations for employees. Uh, They help employees know what's expected, what's required, what's mandated, what's optional. They help employees have a sense of, safety and a sense of purpose in the work they're doing because these governing documents eliminate a lot of the vagaries surrounding their employment. Another benefit is they provide continuity for employees during transition or during leave times or, as I said, when uh, uh, responsibilities are being reassigned somewhere in the organization. And then finally, another good benefit is good governing documents provide stability for decision-making so that there is a sense of calm about how a lot of decisions are going to be made because we know that this is the procedure we're going to use or this is the process that's been outlined or these are the rules that have been agreed to before the problem presented itself. And so we have stability in decision-making because we have these good governing documents. Now, there are also, however, problems that can arise with misuse of governing documents. So let's talk about some of the problems and perhaps what we can do about them. First, the first problem with governing documents is they can become stale, meaning they contain arcane language, are out-of-date procedures, or in some cases, even illegal policies. You know, laws are always changing. Regulations always being adjusted. And so it's important that you make sure that your language in your policies is up to date and that your procedures are uh, reflecting current best practices and that anything that's changed legally definitely gets changed in your organization so that you're not operating outside the bounds of law. Some of these things are, are just pretty simple and straightforward. Like, for example, the Internal Revenue Service, changes the uh, rules about reimbursing people for travel expenses and ministry expenses and work-related expenses all the time. And so it's important that your personnel policies reflect those changes and stay in pace with those changes so that you're able to have uh, what you need done uh, in that way uh, appropriately. So governing documents can become stale. Arcane language, out-of-date procedures, legal policies, you gotta eliminate those. Second, governing documents can also be leveraged to prevent needed change or to resist things that need to happen in an organization. If you've been in ministry very long, you've heard somebody say in a church meeting, but the Constitution says, but the bylaws say, and That's important counsel. We should pay attention to what the documents say, but we also must never leverage those documents to prevent needed change. Now, you can't just go around the rules. You can't just ignore the bylaws. But what you can do is say, yes, the bylaws say this, but... The bylaws also outline a procedure by which the bylaws can be set aside to deal with a particular issue, or the bylaws also outline a procedure by which they can be changed. So, the rules, the bylaws, the procedures, the documents must never be leveraged to keep any change from happening, to always preserve the status quo and keep things just like they've always been. They have to be respected and changed appropriately, but they can always be changed. Another problem with governing documents is they can become too cumbersome to be useful in daily operations. Now, because lawyers and others like to write long-winded policies, our personnel manual here at the seminary has just gotten larger and larger and larger. And so a couple of years ago, I challenged our team, we got to shorten and simplify this document. So I want it to be reviewed, not just for accuracy and not just for uh, uh, competency, but I want it to be reviewed for usability. Is there anything in this that we can remove? that no longer matters, that isn't an issue any longer, that we've moved on from, that really doesn't have anything to do with our our current functionality. And you know, we were able to do that. We were able to take multiple paragraphs and, and in some cases, entire sections out of our personnel manual to make it a more streamlined document that we could actually use more effectively in daily operations. So if your manuals, your policy statements, your rules get so cumbersome that they can't be actually useful, then they probably need a revision and to be shortened. And this leads me to the last problem, and that is they can become too detailed. They can spell out things in such minute detail that they become not a guide to go forward into the future but a constraining force that keeps you from being able to do anything different than the rules specifically prescribe. When you see a set of rules like this in an organization that's overly detailed and too controlling, that tells you somewhere along the way one of two things likely happened. One, there was abuse by leaders, which caused the followers to erect a bunch of rules or to enact a bunch of rules designed to keep that abuse from ever happening again. And in this context, I'm not talking about sexual abuse. I'm talking about the abuse of power, the abuse of authority. That had to be stopped. Another related theme that's often revealed by too detailed of governing documents is a lack of trust or a loss of trust in the organization. The leaders have stopped trusting the followers. The followers have stopped trusting the leaders. And everybody's written a set of rules to protect everyone in the relationship. That's why union contracts, for example, just go on and on and on, page after page after page, in minute detail, because often there's a lack of trust in those relationships. When you see that same kind of thing happening in a ministry organization, that tells you trust is breaking down. So we've talked about the types of governing documents that are helpful, some benefits of good governing documents, and some problems with bad governing documents are the misuse of governing documents. But let me close out the podcast now by giving you some suggestions about how to write governing documents or how to revise governing documents so that you have the best documents possible for use in your organization. Number one. Determine the latest version of the document in question, especially if you've been around for a while uh, in your organization. You know there may be multiple sets of bylaws and a couple of copies of the Constitution and some different doctrinal statements and even uh, different manuals, personnel operations and policy that exist. So if you can, identify the latest version of each document in question and destroy or move away from all other versions. You can use those previous versions to help you understand the latest version, but just remember the latest version is the one you need to work from. So determine the latest version, and then second, use the previous versions to help you understand the latest version, but always focus on using the latest version. Third, discern the core issues which have produced the document as it is. And also then discern the core issues the document still needs to address. In other words, as you read through a document, you may realize, wow, this is just all these different things in this document are about doctrinal problems. Have we had doctrinal issues in the past in our organization? Or, man, as I read through these documents, there are some core issues that aren't even mentioned in these documents. Well, maybe we need to bring those to the table to be addressed. So you start with the latest version. Previous versions serve as a, a guide or a reference to provide context for the latest version that you're holding. You evaluate that latest version from two perspectives. One, what's in the document that has shaped it to be what it is and what's not in the document that really needs to be addressed as we try to work on this going forward. The next thing you want to do is use a group to finalize a revision, a group of leaders in your church can bring shared wisdom, stronger recommendations, a sense of check and balance. Now, certainly as a leader, you're going to, to spearhead this effort, and you may be, even be the primary a scribe who, who who makes the notes and puts the changes in and tries to find the language that's needed. But once you've done that and you've been working toward this revision, a next important step is to use some professional counsel to take a look at your document. Now, don't get alarmed by this. You don't need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars. But there are people, even in your church, who have professional expertise that can help you with this. There are people who have expertise in HR. There are people who have expertise in contract law. There are people who have expertise in managing personnel. There are people who have expertise who can look at the document and say, hmm, boy, this concerns me, or man, I think we're missing something here, or wow, that needs to be emphasized even more strongly. And that kind of input from professionals can help you to bring even greater clarity to the document. And then finally, uh, in terms of writing the document, You're going to want to have a good copy editor, someone who really has an eye for language detail. Go through it and be sure that uh, it's really up to speed. And again, uh, this doesn't have to necessarily be an expensive thing or someone that you get an outsider to do. It might be someone in your church who has a good expertise in writing or editing and some experience with this who's not really uh, reading the document for its legal background, but they're just reading it to see if it makes sense, if it's clearly written, if it has any grammatical or... uh, 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 Are writing mistakes that need to be corrected before you move forward. Once you've gone through these steps, the last thing you want to do is have the document adopted by the highest authority in your church. That may be a vote of the congregation or a vote of the elders, a vote of someone who is recognized as having the highest authority in your church. And it would be the group called for in your bylaws as the ones who have the privilege and responsibility of making the final decision about these issues. In most Baptist churches, this needs to be done by the congregation. Some will have delegated that to a smaller group, but most are still going to want to adopt these major statements at that level of the congregation. And organizations like ours, this of course would be done by the board of trustees or the board of directors who's charged with leading the organization. Well, governing documents, what could possibly be more boring? I know just saying the words constitution and bylaws makes your eyes roll back and you start dozing. Listen, ministry leaders understand the value of good governing documents. They're an asset for us, but they're only an asset if we know what they are, how to use them effectively, how to shape them so that they're really productive tools that we can use in our leadership roles, and how we have the capacity to recognize some of the limitations and move away from some of the problems that bad governing documents or the misuse of governing documents can cause. I've also given you some, some suggestions today about how you can take the governing documents you have and revise them, or how you can lead out in writing some governing documents for your church or your ministry organization. Listen, especially if you're in a church, your associational leaders, your state convention leaders, others like that can be a valuable asset to you to provide models, samples, and direction to help get this job done. Governing documents. On the surface, it doesn't sound very exciting, but leaders know these tools are very helpful and can be helpful to you as you lead on.